and piece of that experience is it's very difficult to not feel I remember feeling very angry and very let down by my body and it's very hard to to reframe it I think like I would this is language that I used internally it's not language I would use to somebody else or you know but you feel like your body has failed you and I think it's very hard to reframe that as like you it's very difficult to put a positive spin on that in any way in the way that sometimes we're encouraged to with things that are difficult difficult experiences to do with our our physical body hey and welcome to another episode of the can i have another snack podcast where i'm asking my guests who or what they are nourishing right now and who or what is nourishing them I'm Laura Thomas, an anti-diet registered nutritionist and author of the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter. Today I'm talking to author and fellow substacker Jenny Ag, who has just written an exceptional book called Life Almost. It weaves together Jenny's own experience with miscarriage and pregnancy loss with expert interviews and impeccable reporting on why we know so very little about fertility and reproductive health. In our conversation today, we're really focused on the erosion of trust that can happen in your body as a result of losing a pregnancy and all the difficult emotions that can get stored in our bodies with nowhere to go to be held safely. And this is in part because of how isolating the experience can be and how the the healthcare system is not at all set up to adequately support people who experience baby loss, either in the moment or going forward into a new pregnancy after loss. We also talk a lot about body image and what has been healing for Jenny as she navigates a new relationship with her body postpartum. I think it's a really lovely conversation and a really important one, but it goes with the content warning that we are talking about pregnancy loss and baby loss as well as experiences in the NICU and breastfeeding challenges. So if you're not in the headspace for this right now, then please take care of yourself and do whatever you need to to look after yourself. I know we've had a few authors promoting their books back to back recently. I promise that not all the guests this season will be promoting books. Um, I think maybe we have one more. Um, We will also be hearing from some clinicians and researchers later in the season. Just the way that it worked out with books coming out, it ended up that some of those authors are appearing earlier in the season. Uh, But I also really wanted to support Jenny because she's been a really supportive cheerleader for me and my work. Some of you might already know that Jenny helps edit some of my essays on the newsletter and her input is really valuable and it means that there aren't as many spelling or grammatical mistakes on the copy that Jenny has edited. So even if trying to conceive or miscarriage aren't on your radar at the moment, I think this is a really important book for anyone who cares about reproductive rights and why we know so little about the health of women and folks with a uterus. It's not just about having a baby, but it's also connected to our autonomy and our collective body liberation. So again, that's why I wanted to share Jenny's work. It's really, really important. And I hope you will check out the book. We'll get to Jenny in just a minute, but first I wanted to remind you that my Raising Embodied Eaters workshop is on Tuesday, the 21st of February. It's Pancake Day. Don't worry, it's not going to be just me giving you a bunch of useless tips and tricks. You know, that's not what I'm about. 
but we will explore your relationship with food a little bit and think about how you can support your kids to have a positive relationship with food and their body. I will give you some practical tools. Um, We will talk about developmental milestones and things like that, but my intention is really to help you take the pressure off of feeding your kids and help you create a home that supports a healthy relationship to food and bodies. I've linked to the full description in the show notes so you can check it out. It's £15, it will be on Zoom and I'll have the recording available for a week after so um, you can watch, if you can't watch it live, you can watch it on playback. Plus you'll also get a copy of my Raising Your Body Eaters guide to share it with family, friends, childcare, schools, or whoever is responsible for feeding your kids. And the last thing before we get to the episode, just a quick reminder that Can I Have Another Snack is a reader-supported publication. I'd love to bring you more deeply researched pieces, but it requires a significant investment in my time, plus the support of an editor, aka Jenny, and behind-the-scenes admin support and a podcast editor as well. So if you are in a position to become a paid subscriber, then please consider it. It's £5 a month, or £50 for the year. And if that's not accessible for you right now, you can email hello at laurathomasphd.co.uk, putting the word snacks in the subject line, and we'll hook you up with a comp subscription. No questions asked. Please do not feel like you have to explain yourself or your situation. I trust that if you have the means to pay for a subscription and you value my work, then you will. And if you can't afford it right now, then um, maybe some point in the future you will be able to become a fully paid subscriber. But for now, just put snacks in the subject line and we'll hook you up with that comp subscription. All right, everyone, here is my conversation with Jenny Ag. Jenny, can you start by telling us who or what you're nourishing right now? Yeah, I can. So I'm Jenny. I'm a journalist and author and I am nourishing myself, my husband, my two and a half year old Edward and three cats. And in nourishing in the the non-literal sense, I am nourishing a writing career and specifically kind of branching out into writing books. I think you're being extremely modest right now, Jenny. So I'm gonna be your I'm gonna be your hype person for a sec. Okay, okay. <laughs> so Jenny has a book. As we're recording, Jenny's book is coming out in two weeks. Her first book. It's her first book, right? First yeah, book. it's my first yeah. book. It's my first book. And yeah, by the time that everyone is listening to this, it will have just come out into the world. I want to know how you, you know, where are we finding you? How are you feeling about it all? You've you've been writing and putting your words out into the world for a long time. You've been writing very vulnerably for a long time. But does this feel different or are you just kind of like, oh, it's, it's more words going out into the world? It definitely feels different. I mean, I never feel like cavalier or like, comfortable with putting anything out like even like sending out my newsletter which I do every week and before that you know I was writing a blog every week and I still you know pressing send still feels incredibly sort of panic inducing but yeah this does feel different I mean it's a very personal book and it feels I guess it feels like the culmination as you said I've been writing about pregnancy loss and my own experience with recurrent miscarriage and going on to have a baby like I've been writing about that for five years six years now 
I was thinking about this the other day, like way before you interviewed me for my first book, I'd come across your writing, maybe like in the pool, RIP, or, you know, some, yeah. something along those lines. And, and it was, it was one of the first pieces I'd ever read about miscarriage. And I remember being kind of like struck by it, obviously, because it's very personal and vulnerable, but also just thinking like, we don't, we don't talk about this. And so I remember, you know, even though babies weren't even on my radar at that point, thinking, wow, what you're doing is really, really important work. And it feels like you've taken everything from the past, I don't know, five or six or however many years, and you've put it into this new book. Yeah, I mean, that, and I guess that's what I've I tried to do. I don't know if this is a really cliche thing to say, but I, I wrote the book that I wanted to exist, mm. like when I had my first miscarriage. And like, I wish I could say that the book answers all the questions that I had back then yeah. and that I still have now. And sometimes like in kind of delving into the, the science and interviewing various doctors and experts and historians about it, often the answer is we still don't know. And so mm. the question is, why don't we know this? we need to do better really is the kind of thrust of the book really and I think it's difficult for me to know exactly how far and how fast things have changed because I you know because I write about miscarriage and pregnancy loss and I am now kind of quite immersed in that world and community it's difficult for me to know exactly how much things have actually changed so when I had my first miscarriage in 2017 I just didn't I didn't know anything about it I really didn't think it was a thing that was going to happen to me and oh I should preface this by saying like by background I'm a health journalist so <laughs> there were lots of things that hadn't happened to me that I knew a little bit about and okay yeah. you never know exactly what something is like if you haven't been through it but I really had no idea and I was really shocked when they kind of say oh, actually, this is really common. And they sort of give you all these leaflets and they quote statistics at you. And you're like, but hang on. They didn't tell me this when I went to my booking in appointment with the GP. It's not, mm. you know, I've been reading the NHS website advice saying at eight, nine weeks, or, you know, look into what maternity leave you're entitled to. Start thinking about, I don't know, when you want to start your leave and you're kind of given mm. things on your next scan and the 20 week scan like right from the word go and there's very much this presumption that your pregnancy will continue and, um, and it's a kind of a linear straightforward yeah process and you go and from was, a to b to c yeah exactly and I think miscarriage is kind of there in that it's you're told don't eat this because there's a, you know, soft cheese and listeria and risk of miscarriage. And, you know, there are lot, lots and lots of things that you're told to do or not to do. And perhaps miscarriage risk is mentioned. But it, rightly or wrongly, I think I felt going into that first pregnancy that miscarriage was something they kind of understood. They knew why it happened. And if you followed the rules, mm. you would be okay. 
and I you know I did follow the rules <laughs> and then this kind of everything was sort of turned on its head really in that they go oh it's just one of those things it happens sometimes it happens quite a lot actually and that was it just kind of blew everything open for me really so I wrote about it for the newspaper where I worked at the time and then as kind of things unfolded I went on to have two more miscarriages that same year some medical tests which were inconclusive and then I had another miscarriage after that I mean that's a very that's a very condensed version but I wrote about it I wrote about it in for magazines and newspapers and then also I I started blog and yeah and then I had a kind of period of time off from trying to conceive because it becomes very all-consuming particularly when there are perhaps we'll come back to this but when there are kind of no answers of what why something has happened or whether it will happen again or Mm -hmm. you it it kind of takes over your life because you're you're sort of looking for lots of things you can do yourself whether that's your diet or your exercise or like just sort of lifestyle things is it stress is it my job is it you know all those things the answer to all of those is probably no (laughs) um but you kind of feel like it might be it must be worth trying like you know you you feel like you need to try absolutely everything and actually that becomes quite a difficult way to live so we kind of took quite a long period out from trying to conceive and when we did feel ready again I got pregnant for a fifth time in 2019 and this again is a very condensed, <laughs> a very condensed version. But I did, I did go on to have my son. Yeah. But there was a question that I don't know whether I've answered answered or not. Well, I think I was just reflecting on sort of the, you know, how I first came across your work and and just it it just felt so. I don't want this to sound like really belittling, but it felt really really brave and courageous to put that out into the world and you know I think I had read your account of your first miscarriage and this kind of like realization that okay well first of all I didn't expect this to me no expect this to happen to me nobody prepared me for this to be even a possibility and secondly the the recognition that we don't know what you know, we we know very little about why this happens to you. And then it sounds as though from there, when you had recurrent miscarriage, you know, you did the, I know that the NHS has this sort of like, what seems to me to be, what's the word that I'm looking for? You, the the rule, not rule. Oh, like it's, it's very arbitrary. The yeah, arbitrary, exactly. yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah, it's the, a very arbitrary rule. And basically they will only... If it's first trimester miscarriages, they'll only investigate for possible kind of other medical causes after three miscarriages, which is like there are reasons for it, which I which I understand. Although there have been there have been calls recently to adopt a slightly more kind of great. I think it's called the kind of the graded graded model mm-hmm. of care, and so there would be some follow-up after one miscarriage some sort of preliminary tests after two and then kind of what they do now after three and like within all of that the the recommendation is that there would be kind of some sort of psychological support if people need it yeah and so far 
kind of the government has not has not taken up this recommendation from lots of scientists and campaigning groups what a surprise and i and it's really tricky to talk about this at the moment and to try to talk about how inadequate the provision is and the kind of support is for people going through miscarriage because you know the health service is so stretched so that's not a you know that's not a criticism of people working in hospitals or early pregnancy units or gps it's a you know this is a a, a more systemic systemic like criticism yeah I mean there's so much we could talk about (laughs) like I think I can't remember the exact figure but I tried to find out in the book how many early pregnancy units open seven days a week like open all hours basically and I can't remember there there aren't really any there might be it's single like it's single figures Mm. it's like two or four or something that I could find yeah in the whole of the UK which is and so you know some are only open like two hours Monday wow. to Friday it's wow. like yeah kind and of. I just the, like this is the the sort of feeling that I'm left with is that when something you know when you experience a miscarriage or even if you're just unsure in those early weeks and months if everything is okay it's such a lonely, isolating experience because there's nowhere to go. And when we have, you know, when these institutions that are supposed to support us, care for us, look after us, you know, are when they when they are literally only open two hours a day, what message does that send about, you know, how much our experiences are valued? And I think that that kind of like, you know, the fact that we don't get any kind of investigation or even really support at all until there have been three recurrent first trimester miscarriages just goes to show again that you know that 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 experience it like we're we're sort of left to deal with it on our own yeah there's no one to help us kind of like yeah move through that no, it really invalidates it, I think. And it sort of sets up this hierarchy in that you're like, you're, you'd kind of, or certainly how I felt was that I really believed I was, that first time I really believed I was going to have a baby. Yeah. And, you know, all those kind of things you think about and things you imagine and plan for, that was all very real and was happening and was underway. And I was, you know, I'd been pregnant for nearly the first miscarriage happened just before the 12 week scan. So, you know, I'd been pregnant for yeah. a few months, but at that point I'd like, I knew about it with all that that entails. And then suddenly it was not happening. And the reaction was kind of completely the opposite to how I was feeling in that the reaction was, this happens all the time. And then you're mm. you're kind of told that they're not gonna they're not gonna ask you. They, I mean, I, I was really shocked that they didn't even ask me any questions. Kind of like, what had you been doing when it started? Or like, and that's you know that has its own problems in that. Then that you start to think it must be something I did, and in a way, that's why they don't ask those questions right. because yeah. Um, yeah. But at the same time, you the, the lack of interest or curiosity mm. in why this happened to you 
when on paper there shouldn't have been any issue is really disorienting and also then it like you don't know how to frame your experience so I was like oh right so should I just be should I just be okay should I be bouncing back from this quicker than I am and I was you know it was a a it was certainly that first time was very physically traumatic and then also it felt it felt like a full-on bereavement really though I would have struggled to say that in my real life at the time like I would have felt that I shouldn't claim that 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 would you know and I think part of that comes from the fact that they don't they don't and can't investigate until you've had more miscarriages like well then that's when it's like quote-unquote a proper Mm. issue that's when you're allowed to feel all these complex feelings and that's when you know you can lay claim to grief or a sort of yeah any of those things and I it took it it really met like I guess what I'm saying is it really messed me up psychologically Mm. and it makes it kind of encourages you I think to push down what you're actually feeling Mm. and to kind of minimize your own grief and anger and shock and and it's completely it's completely the opposite of what actually now they're starting to learn Mm. through Mm -hmm. scientific studies about how people feel and how that experience affects people you know it's a significant proportion I think it's about one in five people who have an early pregnancy loss so that might be a first trimester miscarriage or it might be ectopic pregnancy experience symptoms like PTSD and it's it's and partners as well like it's not quite as as high a proportion it's like one in 12 I think a kind of secondary study to that study found which is is shocking like this this is huge that's such a massive finding and it sounds as though you know that 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 study was measuring people who met some sort of like clinical threshold for PTSD or or PTSD like yeah, symptoms yeah, and exactly. what about everybody else who is experiencing these really complex really painful emotions and they just have to go to work the next day yeah exactly yeah I mean and they I, I think from memory that study do, does talk as well about how within that there are a lot of people who might not have met that clinical criteria for PTSD yeah. but there was you know anxiety and depression were really common which again and you are just expected to pick up and and start again and you know try to get pregnant again yeah. which is a whole other and this is really I think a large part of my book and what I write in the book is my experience of pregnancy after loss and after miscarriages and how that is actually it's a completely different experience pregnancy without that knowledge and I I still don't know that that's something we're really that familiar with like outside of very particular support communities yeah yeah how do you I mean there's so many things that my my brain is going to here but there's you know sort of this question of well how do you sort of raise awareness of the fact that miscarriage can be a possibility without then creating a lot of fear and anxiety in people trying to conceive and then also this this big question of how do you support people through a pregnancy when either they've had 
you know, pregnancy complications previously or experienced baby loss or miscarriage or, or you know, I, God forbid, like the loss of a, a young child. Yeah. You know, what kind of support needs to be put into place? And, and it sounds like a it's taking it's taking science a really long time to catch up with the fact that people might have really difficult feelings yeah. and feel really yeah. ambivalent about about going yeah. into a, another pregnancy and yeah that even even once we've kind of like identified that that's the case what then is the support what we, yeah what to, do we actually do about this yeah, yeah yeah and the thing that I'm I'm really curious to talk to you about because it's kind of a thread that runs through this podcast and the newsletter which is around you know when you experience something like this where you know your body doesn't sort of it doesn't act in the way that we expect it to and want it to and and maybe you know we we feel let down or betrayed by our bodies and and I can sort of speak from experience here in terms of like birth not going to to plan and you know early experiences with with feeding that there's there's a lot of of grief and you know that can be a very painful experience and I'm just I'm curious to know what what your experiences were around body trust and maybe body image more broadly you know having gone through these recurrent miscarriages it's a really what's the right word it's a it's it's a huge factor I think and piece of that experience is it's I remember I mean it's very difficult to not feel I remember feeling very angry and very let down Mm. by my body and it's very hard to to reframe it I think like I would this is language that I used internally it's not language I would use to somebody else or you know but you feel like your body has failed you and I think it's very hard to reframe that uh, like you it's very difficult to put a positive spin on Mm -hmm. that in any way in the way that sometimes we're encouraged to with things that are difficult difficult experiences to do with our our physical body so you know and it's it's hard I think in that you know my body I didn't look pregnant to the outside world Mm -hmm. which you know for some people that will be their experience of of pregnancy loss you know they will have announced their pregnancy and being visibly pregnant and then that is it's a whole other element of this but for me other people might not have seen it but you know my body had had changed and I was and I think I mean maybe it's because it's you are hyper aware I think in pregnancy particularly or I certainly was in that first trimester of my first pregnancy I mean and then certainly in later pregnancies you're hyper aware of every symptom or twinge that you have or kind of and and you feel different anyway right like you don't feel very well you feel very tired there's a lot going on like as in it's a very it's a very physical experience the first trimester even though yeah we kind of still have this convention of like not announcing a pregnancy then so you kind of do all that in private 
Mm-hmm. And, then, and then you emerge in the second trimester as this glowing pregnant yeah person. yeah that's like, the fantasy that, that we're sold isn't yeah. it and it, it's very difficult I think and it you've uh, what do I mean I think I felt so resentful I felt so resentful of you know what I perceived as kind of weight gain and changes to my body which you know I like I look back now and I think that was my brain had definitely exaggerated the reality of that and I think that's as complicated isn't it it's that sort of idea of like oh I I feel I feel fat today it's like what does that what does that really mean yeah particularly you know talking as somebody who is straight sized it feels very familiar I think what you're talking about you know that we we often put all the difficult, raw emotions that we're experiencing, the grief, the trauma, the stress, the anxiety, all of it onto, you know, we we distill that because because it feels really hard to say all of those things. The, the you know, the resentment as well, which is such a great word, I think. We, we reduce it down to a feeling of, of being fat when you know yeah. like you said that's not that's not a feeling and our bodies are are holding all of these complex feelings and emotions that that we sometimes find hard to especially if you know we haven't announced our pregnancies to the world or especially if we don't have a space to go to like a therapist or, or you know someone to oh. hold and contain that for us we we kind of store it in our bodies and it and it shows up in these really unwelcome ways I don't know if that speaks to yeah um, it 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 really does I think because there something I remember from certainly that first time and then also after subsequent pregnancy losses the fear of being mistaken for pregnant mm-hmm. was huge and like if you think about it in a purely rational like logical way that it would make sense if somebody thought I like I had you know in some cases I had literally been pregnant two days previously like Mm -hmm. that was not and yet somehow that was all really bound up with a sense of kind of loss of control and kind of moral failing and Mm. and it you know it, it it's almost certainly informed by all the things we're told about postpartum bodies and how Mm-hmm. women should you know you're celebrated for looking pregnant up until the moment you give birth and then you should your body should like bear no trace of having yeah. carried and birthed a baby like it, you know in that incredibly unrealistic way so I'm you know this that's almost certainly a part of it but it's that idea of somehow I would feel ashamed to be mistaken for pregnant mm-hmm. when I mean and obviously like that it's just there's the pure like that's a painful thing because it's having to admit or reflect on the fact that I wasn't pregnant and I really wanted to be but at the same time that sort of focus on your body and how you look and particularly like how your stomach looks is it's hard for me like to me it's hard not to see that in the context of all the various narratives around women's bodies and body size and yeah snapback culture 
or whatever it is so yeah that definitely like I can see I can see that that's probably what was going on there yeah I mean I I I don't mean to directly compare experiences because I know that losing a baby is is absolutely not the same as the experience that I have yet there are there are some things that feel very relatable to in what you're saying and I'm thinking about a time when Avery was in the NICU and we were getting a taxi up to the hospital and I still looked very very pregnant because I had just given birth and there was an assumption by the taxi driver that I was in labor going to the hospital to give birth or that you know that I was very close to my due date and you know there was this big smiley face and this reception of like oh and 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 it was the same when when I you know when when I gave birth there were all these congratulations being thrown at me and I was like but my baby is look at him like he's yeah. really ill and I'm gonna get I'm getting really emotional oh, sorry but no it's okay I just there was just this visceral rejection of that congratulations and 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 at that time I can, I can see it differently now but at that time it, it I was chalking it up to the failure of my body you know the failure to you know to have the the birth and the labor that Mm. that I wanted to have and sort of you know was was blaming myself for effectively putting him in the NICU which is you know I've done a birth debrief that's not the case right (laughs) like I I can rationally say that now but uh, you know there was there's something there that I think you're you're speaking to with you know the changes in your body and how your body looks and how something is perceived maybe to be this really positive thing like a pregnancy like giving birth but that actually something else is concealed behind that something very very different and your reality not matching up to what's maybe presenting outwardly if that makes sense yeah it does make sense it does make sense I think that's a really good way of thinking about it and it and then for me I think the the kind of and this has been a sort of then been a a thread that's gone through kind of all of my subsequent pregnancies and then going on to have my son and to be a parent and those kind of early experiences of parenting is that real fear of kind of something unknown that's wrong with your body because that's kind of what that experience leads you to because Mm. there was never any and this is the case for, I think it's about 50% of people who have recurrent miscarriages, as in, so people who have medical tests for multiple yeah. miscarriages, most or at least half never, like, there's never any kind of specific diagnosis. Mm. And I think, I talk about this in the book, recurrent miscarriage is kind of thrown around as a label, as if it's a diagnosis but it's not and, and like, as if it's like a homogenous experience. Yeah, exactly. And like, actually it, it's, it's not like there'll be lots of different, potentially lots of different reasons. And most of the time, probably a lot of those reasons, we don't know what they are yet. And most of the time you, you won't be given any kind of anything concrete that they're saying, well, you know, that this blood marker or whatever it is, absolutely every 
tests I had, and there were many, lots of blood tests and then sort of scans of like my pelvic anatomy and the shape of my womb, that sort of thing, all came back completely normal. There's nothing in my kind of menstrual cycle history or anything like that that would point to anything hormonal or yeah and I think so then there's that I think quite logical (laughs) fear of like but clearly this isn't clearly this shouldn't be happening Mm -hmm. like this is too many in a row it's too like the the explanation which is really what you're you're sort of encouraged to think which is that this is just bad luck like that doesn't feel very satisfactory and I mean it might be true but I also think we're a little bit over-reliant on that idea that it that it might that it, it is true and so that that leads you to there's something in my body that or in the way that my body works that we don't really understand yet that they you know don't know how to fix was where my brain went mm-hmm. and that that's very difficult to put aside even and so I mean something coming back to kind of how that's carried through so when Edward was born and I was trying to feed him and kind of those early days of breastfeeding which were difficult not I don't think in the grand scheme of things I don't think we had that difficult a time you know he wasn't very glad to say he wasn't in the NICU or anything like that so we were able to try it right from the beginning and I know that's not true for everybody but you know it's a hard thing it's a hard thing to do breastfeeding yeah regardless Um, of you know how your baby came into the world it's it's yeah hard yeah like even in the best of circumstances like I think it's a hard thing to do and it's a new skill to learn all those things so he and kind of in spite of feeling like we'd sort of got the hang of it and it was kind of working like his weight dropped at those kind of first checks that they do with the Mm -hmm. midwife when he was home and then so they sort of go through all their things and they say right well let me watch you feed him and they kind of do their observations and they looked at him and they kind of and again this is this is something I write about a little bit in the book but they said like several midwives and then a feeding consultant said well it doesn't it all seems fine you're doing everything right there doesn't seem to be a reason you know like positive things yeah that should be like in other circumstances would be very good news but you're like but you're telling me his weight is dropping too much Mm. and that really like hit some kind of internal alarm bell for me because it was just that that I possibly didn't even realize I had which was like there is something wrong with me that can't be fixed or there's something wrong with him and you like we don't know enough to know what it is and kind of knowing that like being told there's nothing wrong isn't always very comforting news like that kind of prior knowledge of that made that an incredibly stressful time I mean the the like the punchline to this is the feeding (laughs) consultant who was very kind and gave me lots of helpful like practical advice said did you take a picture of the scales at the hospital and I was like no of course I didn't I was (laughs) I was being stitched up she was like because they, they write I don't know if this is true for every hospital but our hospital wrote down the weight in grams okay so it's like a is that right grams so it's like a four yeah, it's like yeah. A four digit yeah, number yeah yeah she said sometimes 
they just they might have just switched like like a two, two and a three or yeah. yeah exactly and so actually what would have been like a you know a couple of percentage drop in weight was actually like 13 percent or whatever and like he, you know there were never any other outward signs that he was struggling like yeah so like I can kind of laugh about it now but at the time it really felt it was a real reminder that 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 runs really deep now that fear of kind of it's fear of basically it's fear of the unknown isn't it but it's mm-hmm. it's so kind of rooted in my body and kind of by extension yeah. now Edward's body does that make sense it it makes so much sense and I I mean I could and maybe one day I will write an entire book about feeding babies in the er- oh, in the early days. I would buy that days. book, Laura. I would buy that book. And, and the and and kind of like the the things we say, particularly around you know weight loss in those early days and and weight regain and feeding and ugh, it's 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 there's there's so much that happens in that short period of time that can that can create anxiety and fear that carries through you know that sets the tone for that feeding relationship like when I'm working with parents and you know there's someone had you know their child has some challenges around feeding like I can you can trace that line back to some horrific thing that uh, you know a flippant comment that a healthcare professional has said to them about you know not gaining enough weight or eating too much is the other you know like you can never oh, just gosh. get the, yeah. the the perfect balance right right and 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 so the genesis of a lot of parents fears and concerns like it, it comes back to that point and I think you know what a health visitor maybe isn't so cognizant of is all of your backstory and the the you know all of the challenges and and the the pain and the grief and everything that you're carrying into that experience with your child so they're they're giving you this you know what they think is just a factual thing which it turns out in your case it wasn't even factual but well, no, no and he was and, and he was fine like that was, that's the know. thing they don't look at the baby they don't ever look yeah. at the baby they look at the chart I mean I'm I'm doing a disservice to midwives and health not all health health visitors and midwives but you look at a number and you don't look at the broader context like oh you know how are they feeding do they look like you know do they do they have like chubby arms and legs and and, you know what are their parents statures and body sizes and like how does that factor into this so like yeah there's there's yeah I I could go on and on and on about (laughs) that but I think yeah like not taking into context the broader you know like fears and anxieties and pressures and and feelings the the conflicting feelings that you have you know as a result of of how you know in your case how Edward came into the world and how you feel about your own body I I don't know it just feels like there needs to be a shift in how we are yeah like how we are caring for for people in the whole entire perinatal period yeah like, I mean uh, definitely I think definitely, I mean yeah that definitely. goes without saying right but uh, I feel like I kind of lost the thread and just got 
up on my soapbox a little bit there. And I'm I'm curious to know, there are so many other things, Jenny, that we, we kind of like yeah. said that we, we talk about that we're not going to have time for. But I think what feels important to to maybe think about is, you know, you've talked about feeling let down by your body and, and the sort of broken trust. You know, I think we... Yeah. We all kind of go into pregnancy by and large or going going to trying to conceive with like just this implicit trust that our bodies are going to do the things that we would like them to do in the way that we would like them to, to do them. And then, you know, what, what you're talking about is just this bit by bit by bit erosion of that trust, you know, first through recurrent miscarriage, which, you know, in and of itself that's multiple layers of of erosion of trust and then into into breastfeeding and you know I'm sure there are other elements of of parenting and just being a body in the world but I'm curious you know how or if or you know what regaining trust in your body looks like feels like if it even feels possible yeah I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts yeah. on that in the in the like five minutes we've got left. oh yeah okay I have a really pithy easy answer to this no I don't but I do think it is possible so so there are a few things so I think at least initially there was kind of that I had the opposite feeling than I'd felt after my miscarriages and being very worried about being mistaken for pregnant so kind of mm-hmm. getting first of all in pregnancy getting further along and I like I had a very anxious very difficult pregnancy in lots of ways like Mm -hmm. and I like it was a very difficult time psychologically but at the same time there were definitely kind of quite healing I think is probably the right word things Mm -hmm. in in that sort of physical evidence of pregnancy and kind of seeing my body change and feeling a baby move and Mm. going to term that was really that was very healing it might not always have felt like that at the time but like now I kind of look back and I think I can see that it it was and I like I liked that like I liked kind of seeing myself pregnant and I liked kind of when I felt sort of ready which was quite far on into pregnancy Mm. like I really liked buying maternity clothes and you know things that and even like if the maternity clothes were a bit crap, like <laughs> like I kind of like that was quite nice in itself. It's like, oh, I like I would not choose this dress in real life, but you know, like it fits it fits over my body. It fits, so. <laughs> it fits and it's comfortable and like it's not too hot or whatever it was. And kind of recognizing those feelings that you kind of I would have used to hear other pregnant women complain about and think, I'm so jealous of you. Like getting to experience those things myself was really kind of I don't know if that sounds perverse but it that was very healing I was lucky in that I had a relatively positive birth experience like mm. I had an induction mm. which I know is not oh no that's not a positive birth experience Jenny that's, uh, that's and I, like, again this is I mean I god I wish I probably shouldn't have even mentioned it should I it's a whole thing yeah it's literally a chapter in in the book oh god it's so but actually I had a really positive birth experience like in the possibly in the sense that it exceeded my expectations (laughs) and 
that was you know that was that was good I'm, I'm very aware that I'm kind of saying that to somebody who had the opposite experience and I hope that's not oh no um, no you know. no I'm honestly I'm so pleased when people say like actually it didn't all go tits up and I feel okay about it yeah and um so that was you know that was and then oh this is what I was going to say so the other thing was I had after Edward was born and I was still like visibly very like I looked what we would consider to be a pregnant yeah body but really it's just a like I had a baby two weeks ago two months ago <laughs> body like I didn't I didn't have that same like oh god I hope no one mistakes me for pregnant because mm. I was like I was there I had Edward with me most of the time mm. like and we weren't really going out that much anyway mm. because of lockdown and things but so that was really nice being like well yeah I look like I just had a baby because I just had a baby and that was a kind of that was a nice I it was a kind of felt like a correction perhaps it gets more complicated that relationship with my body as time went on in a sort of more superficial sense and like a, I guess a body image for want of a better phrase sense you know like when my body still looked different at nine months like I have a particular loathing for those nine months yeah. in nine months out pictures like I well you know how I know for some people that's just like fun and not everybody who shares those pictures is a fitness influencer or whatever but I yeah I don't know they I can't they, they do something to me and I think what else do I think so I think now that I'm kind of two years two and a half years on from having a baby I think the thing that's been this is this is perhaps quite a low-key thing to say like helps rebuild that trust mm -hmm. but it's just that it's a little bit of I've had a period of like stability I guess mm -hmm. in my body like I'm not breastfeeding anymore I haven't been for for a long time I'm not actively trying to conceive I've not you know I've not had a miscarriage since Edward was born like that just period of letting my body just be and for it not to be not I guess there are no expectations of yeah, it no to do anything really, yeah I was gonna say like no like nasty surprise <laughs> yeah, yeah. no expectations of it to be doing anything other than like I don't know letting me sit at my desk and work and you know the occasional yeah plodding run at park run or you know what just like yeah. being, exactly just being um and I had a, it feels a little bit like so we had a, a, a period of about a year off from trying to conceive that was a quite a healing time and I, I'd really resisted it for such a long time mm. I'd really resisted it because I felt we just needed to kind of get through and, you know, try again and try again. But yeah, actually that yeah. time to just not be worrying about what I was eating or drinking or, mm. you know, all those things mm. was really, it, it I was quite sceptical that it, that I would make me feel better. Like that just yeah. doing nothing would make me feel better. And yeah. actually it did. And it's been the same postpartum as well. Like, mm -hmm. but that's not always what you want to hear when you're in the kind of, the middle of those like ruptures in how you relate to your body which like that's difficult and and it's interesting that you use the word rupture there because it's it's what was going through my head as well that you know the these perturbations in our 
body, you know, whether it's because of, you know, trying to conceive or the, the, whether, you know, it's miscarriage, pregnancy itself, giving birth, breastfeeding, all of these, you know, just, yeah, perturbations in our body, you know, they can be not miscarriage, obviously, but, you know, pregnancy, breastfeeding can be really positive connecting experiences for our body. And they can also really disconnect us and 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 make our bodies feel not not quite as safe yeah we 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 maybe feel more disconnected in those periods and and also it can be both at the same time yes. and and i think yeah i'm thinking about this from the perspective of of being embodied of being in our bodies of of not being separate from our bodies that you know these milestones these landmarks i suppose can can both take us in and out of our bodies and usually and, and I think that's why it's such a head fuck right because yeah yeah you're going, you're going back and forth you're like do I want to yeah, be in my body it, do I want to be out of it like yeah yeah um, like on an almost like hourly basis sometimes yeah. like <laughs> and and yeah. then and then it sounds like what you're what you're sort of where you're at at the moment is like just letting my body be or letting your body be has has helped you kind of come back to it in a sense and I and I know it's not that's a a nice simple narrative but and it's not quite that simple but but that there has been some healing some catharsis some yeah reconnecting that that has taken place for you in just yeah letting your body be yeah definitely definitely well Jenny that feels like a really nice note to wrap this up on so before we go, I would like to ask you who or what is nourishing you right now? So the obvious one is my husband, Dan. He, yeah, he just makes sure, particularly at the moment when work stuff and kind of book publicity stuff has been quite overwhelming. Like he's made sure that I'm not staying up until midnight <laughs> and yeah, that I stop and eat my dinner and just basic boring basic things like that but also something I was thinking about in terms of like bringing this book out into the world is the thing that that's kind of sustained me I guess is all the kind of little ways that people have been supportive of it so whether that's like you inviting me on this podcast or kind of newspaper editors I've worked for before being like oh will you write a piece about your book or like so this is this just happened at the weekend I gave a copy of the book to my one of my very close friends and he has very deliberately put it on his bookshelf behind uh, like so he does a lot of meetings from home I'm like, I'm put it on my bookshelf so everyone will see it and I was like that's the sweetest thing it's really cute but yeah exactly so yeah and just little things like that are really really nice and I've had a couple of messages from people being like I've I've just found your blog or I've just found your Instagram and I've pre-ordered your book and yeah it's just nice it's not like it doesn't it's something about all of those things together is very like it's a it's a very vulnerable book think I need to kind of accept that that that's the case and I think this has been a nice like balancing counterbalance with that is that actually lots of people have been very supportive and yeah that's nourishing I think in the, the bigger sense 
Yeah. Oh, I love that. I know certainly you and I have talked about vulnerability in numbers before. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, they're um, real. And I, I guess, if, uh, yeah, I don't know. The one from this book might be horrendous. It's going to be like a, I don't know, <laughs> it'll feel. We'll see. But having those kind of reminders that actually, although it's difficult, although it's incredibly difficult subject matter, that this will be really healing and cathartic and supportive for a lot of people who have been through something similar and it sounds like that's the the sort of little bits of recognition that you're getting and and yeah just yeah the... I think that's it it's it's those like little moments of we support this like we want we think this message needs to be out yeah. there like we've got you like that's really nice it's just a really nice it's a nice thing yeah so for anyone who's listening who has found this episode useful or any of Jenny's work useful, please drop us a comment <laughs> to, to show a little, a little bit of appreciation. Oh, thank you. All right. Before I let you go, I need to know what you are snacking on right now. So it can be a literal snack like my one is this week or a podcast, a book, a show, just something that you're you're really into at the moment and that you want to share with the audience so what are you snacking on right now Jenny oh okay so I really wanted to have like a good and like a good literal snack and I kind of (laughs) failed completely but like and this I don't want this to be like one of those like food diaries that go viral and it's like my treat is a an almond milk cappuccino like that's not what this is intended to be but (laughs) for various reasons I had some leftover chocolate oat milk in my fridge and I was like I don't know what to do with this like the thing I was going to use it for I ended up not making and then the other day I'd run out of other um, milk of any any kind I was like I know I'll put it in my coffee and it's it's great can I be clear are we talking about chocolate oatly yes yes okay controversial no 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 I was just about to say I use that to make ice lollies for Avery blend it up with a bit of banana and peanut butter that's and a it's very good idea. really delicious. So if you ever have, you know, like drags in the carton and like, yeah, not sure what to do with it. They make good ice lollies too. That is a genius. <laughs> so yeah, I've been having a lot like my kind of accidental homemade mocha. Yeah. So that's good. That's been a good, like, well, it's not really a snack, is it? It's a drink, but. Um, yes. Let's be clear. That, is, that does not constitute not a, any sort of meal replacement option. No. <laughs> no. No, no, but it is delicious and it has been cheering me up actually as I've been working. It's like, so yeah, that's good. And I will have to try and make some ice lollies with it. <laughs> that um, sounds delicious. Mine, mine is also a food related thing. So I, this week I made some vegan millionaire shortbread. Do you know like carnation condensed milk? Yes. Okay, yes. so like super yeah. retro, <laughs> but, yeah, they've, but it, they've got... Yeah, they've got a vegan version now and they have a recipe on their website for like vegan millionaire shortbread. Like it's not, it's not a new recipe or anything like that. In fact, my friend Izzy Hosick, the cookbook author and food stylist, you might've heard of her, but she, she like styled one of their recipes for her Instagram, like ages and ages ago. And that's how I found out about it. And I've been making it like periodically ever since. And then Dave got a bee in his bonnet about having it the other day, like on a Monday yeah. night. So I had to like, try, like after I did the, the 
the childminder pickup like went to go and get all the ingredients from the shop and yeah made the whole thing and it was I mean they helped as well but it was delicious and we have been enjoying millionaire shortbread so I'll link to the recipe in the show notes yeah that sounds good Jenny before you go could you please let everyone know where they can find you and your work and more importantly where they can get hold of your book yes absolutely I am I am on social media, mostly on Instagram. I'm there as at Jenny Monologues and it's Jenny with an IE. And my book, Life Almost, Miscarriage, Misconceptions and a Search for Answers from the Brink of Motherhood is out now and it's available. It should be available anywhere that you buy your book. So it's on Amazon, but it's also on bookshop.org and Waterstones and yeah if it's not in a bookshop and you go and look for it <laughs> ask them for it please that would be yeah thank you I will make sure to link to your Substack and links oh, to yes, everything thank you, you, thank you. <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll link to everything in the show notes and the transcript as well so that people can get a hold of your book thank you so much Danny and really appreciate this conversation me. and I'm really excited for your book to be out in the world thank you Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Can I Have Another Snack? If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review in your podcast player and head over to laurathomas.substack.com for the full transcript of this conversation, plus links we discussed in the episode and how you can find out more about this week's guest. While you're over there, consider signing up for either a free or paid subscription to the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter where I'm exploring topics around bodies, identity, and appetite, especially as it relates to parenting. Although it's totally cool if you're not a parent, you're welcome to. We're building a really awesome community of cool, creative, and smart people who are committed to ending the tyranny of body shame and intergenerational transmission of disordered eating. Can I Have Another Snack is hosted by me, Laura Thomas, edited by Julie Kelly. Our funky artwork is by Caitlin Pricer. And the music is by Jason Barkhouse. And lastly, Fiona Bray keeps me on track and makes sure this episode gets out every week. This episode wouldn't be possible without your support. So thank you for being here and valuing my work. And I'll catch you next week. <laughs>